Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West. Dean Summers has conquered the triple crown of open water swimming, and as we are recording, is waiting for his chance to swim the Cook Strait between the North and South Islands of New Zealand, which is part of his attack on the Ocean's Seven. Only 18 people have completed this series of seven amazing channel and strait swims, and Dean is five in. He has swum the English Channel, the Catalina Strait, the North Channel, Molokai Channel, and the Strait of Gibraltar. He plans to conquer the remaining two, Cook Strait and the Sugaru Strait in Japan, by 2020. I started by asking Dean how he got into these amazing endurance swims. I don't know, it just sort of evolved. I, um, I'm born in Fremantle, near the ocean, so I spent most of my childhood growing up on the beaches in, uh, in Fremantle. And then I went to sea at 16, so I'm a merchant seafarer, and I've always been on, in, or around the ocean. So um, when I found um, a group, a squad, in around 2013, I was just interested in doing a couple of laps and getting a bit of fitness back. But that's just... Uh, that just morphed into something a bit bigger. <laughs> and so you came to the endurance swimming uh, not as an 18-year-old but as a 50-year-old. That's right. I, I swam a lot as a kid and, you know, in Fremantle, everyone swam in the ocean or in squads. We swam in early morning squads and at school and everything else. But the longest we ever did was um, was a mile, 1,600 kilometres, 1,600 metres. Um, I'm getting a bit confused there. <laughs> Uh, 1,600 metres, and so um, I just gave it away when I went to work, and I never swam, um, you know, bits and pieces, but I never really swam until I decided uh, in around 2013 that I needed to get back to it, and I really enjoyed it. I only had great memories of it, and I remember getting into a 50-metre pool and being only able to do about eight laps, and then I was exhausted, but I built that up eight, ten, and then then I found this squad in the Andrew Boy Charlton Pool in the city, in Sydney City, and uh, just started hanging around a, a bunch of people that swam and ever increasing distances. Yeah, and it, well, it's a big jump from a mile to swimming five of the of the the ocean seven. Uh, I mean, and these are massive swims. Can you tell us about the ocean seven? Yeah, well, they're considered to be, and I'm pretty sure they are, the seven toughest swims uh, in the world that encompass channels. So. You know, a lot of people do, and just over the last few years, have done some incredible swims. Um, but these are from usually from one continent or crossing a strait or a channel. And they are uh, usually starting with the English Channel, and that's uh, considered by a lot of people as the pinnacle of swimming. But in our group, it's not, but it's still an incredible challenge. And for those that make it, it's an amazing thing. And I think up to date, there's about 1,800 people in history that have swum that channel. That's not that many when you consider... You know, um, consider all the uh, all the effort and everything else you have to put in. Eighteen hundred people is a lot. Is not a lot of people. Um, that is thirty-four kilometres from Dover in the south of uh, England to just south of Calais in France. I did that in two thousand and fifteen, and that took me a little over thirteen hours. Okay, that's still quite an amazing. Um... So if you, if you started swimming seriously again in 2013, in two years you trained up to swim in the English Channel. That, that's quite a feat. It is, and it's funny how it happened. I, I just started swimming in the Andrew Boy Charlton with the ABC, and uh, one of the lifeguards said, if you're serious, you should talk to this guy. His name was Vlad, a coach. And uh, so I did, and I cautiously asked him about it. He said, yeah, just come swimming with us, join the squad. And uh, then I realised that there were some people in the squad that were actually training to swim the English Channel, and that just blew me away. I was really impressed that I was swimming in the same pool as people that were doing all of their training in the pool and in the ocean on the weekends to take on what I considered just the Everest of, uh, of swims. And so I started swimming with them, and then quickly I just fell in, in step with them, I suppose, again, the routine of training in the morning, uh, of taking on big challenges on the weekend, coming home exhausted on a Saturday afternoon after a long swim, uh, and just feeling good for the rest of the weekend. So that's where that started. And I drove everyone I knew mad about telling them about these champions that I was swimming with. <laughs> um, and it was only two years later that I was able to uh, take it on myself. 
that's that's and great. Then of, and then, of course, there's the, the Catalina Channel is the second one. That's from Catalina Island, a pretty well-known uh, tourist destination off Los Angeles. That's 32 k's off LA, uh, uh, and uh, that is warm water, but a lot of wildlife, very deep water, um, and you know it's just on the beautiful. You finish on the beautiful beaches of um, of Los Angeles. The next is the North Channel. That's uh, probably the most intimidating channel, I think. It's about 36 or 37 kilometres from Ireland to Scotland in the Irish Sea. And that is uh, accentuated, I suppose <laughs> you'd say, by large line, mine, line mains jellyfish and the cold. So uh, that's a big consideration for that one. What would you do if you, got, if you got caught by one of those jellyfish? There's not a lot you could do, is there? Well, I was pretty lucky that I only got stung a little bit on my hands. And it was a choppy day, so the jellyfish just went under the surface a, a few few metres, so I was able to get away from them. But they do have the potential to stop a swim and to inject enough venom um, to absolutely um, debilitate a swimmer. So you've got to be really careful. And you try to swim around them, but that just is a little impractical. And I tried at first to get around them, but, you know, it's just you've got to get in a rhythm. You've got to lose yourself and give yourself over to long-distance swimming and your mind goes into a meditative state. You can't stop and start. So you just have to cop that sweet sometimes, and it's a, one of those things that rely on luck. Uh, there's a lot of luck in this swim, in this swimming uh, sport, and one of those in the in the Irish Channel, in the North Channel, is the uh, is the jellyfish. And you can prepare for the cold, and you can prepare for the prepare for the chop and the long day that's ahead of you. But some of the things you can't prepare for. You must have an amazing support crew. Then, do you take the uh, your same support crew? all around the world to these different swims? I do, and I'm very lucky that uh, the support crew is mostly my family. So my wife is a swimmer, Kylie. She's a, a very accomplished swimmer. She's faster than I am and probably a better swimmer than I am, but does not like the cold, so I don't think she'll be approaching any of these channels anytime soon. <laughs> I also have uh, my son and my daughter, adult son and daughter. Uh, they really get into the training. They support me in the long, cold, wintry nights and training in Sydney and around the place uh, and I've had both of them on different swims at different times okay. so I'm really lucky and I also take Vlad my coach uh, from time to time but he hasn't been on all of them unfortunately and that's a, a double-edged sword because well it's got advantages because Vlad gets to see all of these channels meets all of the people involved on on the other side of the world and knows uh, makes those contacts so other people want to swim behind me the next people that come through to these straits uh, it's a little easier for them in terms of logistics. And so you and so you're going through the the four. I think the next one you were mentioning was the the one in Hawaii. Yes, that's called the Molokai Channel or the Kaiwi, Kaiwi Channel, and that's just under 50 kilometres. So it's a big, long swim. And when you consider the geography of Hawaii, it's just a couple of specks of rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So it is very, very isolated. And uh, you fly to the starting line, which is a little intimidating in itself. So you catch a small plane from Oahu, the main uh, island of Honolulu, and then you land in Molokai, you prepare and you start swimming from Molokai back to Oahu. It's a very, very long swim, a lot of wildlife, a lot of weather can kick up very quickly, uh, wind and swell and everything else. So that's a tough one and, and the longest of the Ocean 7. There's the Gibraltar Strait. That's a really cool one because it's between, it's between Europe and Africa. And so you leave at the south of Spain in a place called Tarifa and then you swim to Morocco. That's only about um, 20 odd, maybe 22 kilometers. Uh, and it's a lot of cross currents. And of course, it's the, uh, it's the Atlantic going into the Mediterranean. So that's got all the things you want in a swim. It's got tough currents. It's got a lot of wildlife you know, teams of dolphins and sharks and whales and everything else. So we had a good swim across that, but 
uh, it is a really iconic swim and well-deserving one of the Ocean Seven. Wow. And so what are the other two then that, that you've got to do and when are you going to do them or are you going to do them? Well, the next one off the rank is, uh, is the Cook Strait between the North and South Island of New Zealand. I've caught the ferry across there and that's, you know, not exactly calm. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people say that they're scared of just taking the, the ferry across. <laughs> yeah. and is, I'm not sure treacherous is the right word, but it is very confused water. And the real art of this one is to pick the right day, the right currents, uh, and try to get across before Mother Nature decides she, she doesn't want you across there. Uh, just over 100 people have done that swim, and it is really tough because the water streams through. It's like a big funnel that comes through and hits the mountains on the bottom of the ocean and pushes water up and swirls around. Uh, it's not the longest by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's 26 kilometres, but it is a tough, tough swim, and nobody underestimates how tough that swim is. So I'm going to do that on the 1st of December. Well, sometime the weather window is between the 1st of December and the 10th of December. So you go to your, you know, wherever these swims start, you get a window and you sit and wait for the pilot and the observers to, to discuss and decide that this is the best chance. Often um, the weather doesn't open up and that happened to me last year when I sat in, in Wellington in New Zealand waiting for this swim to come about. It just didn't happen. I went home without having a proper swim. So um, hopefully this 10-day window will give me an opportunity to get across and I very much look forward to it and I'm, I'm physically ready for it and mentally ready for it. That sounds amazing. I mean, what a way to see the world. I mean, yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, it'd probably end up being quite expensive if you have a lot of cancelled swims, but it's, it's amazing. It's way enormously to see the world. expensive. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the, the boats cost a lot. Getting your team, getting yourself there, training, accommodation, all the logistics, you know, it is an extensive sport. But the, the, uh, the last one is the Sugaru Strait um, between Honshu and Hokkaido in Japan. And that, again, is a treacherous strait with this terrible current that comes down from the north and sweeps across the Sea of Japan. Um, I've tried, well, I've been to Japan four times for this one and I haven't been able to get across yet. So really? that is my nemesis. And I'm booked in sometime, well, I've got a tentative booking sometime next year. So that will be my Ocean 7, hopefully. Wow. And how many people have done the Ocean 7? Uh, I think, well, I know for sure there's, there are two Australians that have done it. Uh, and that's only very recently. One year ago was the first, uh, and then quickly followed the second. So there's only two Australians, uh, and probably around 14 around the world, including those two. So it's a big prize, and it's uh, it's hard to get and expensive, as I mentioned, but it takes years and years of practice, continually keeping fit, trying to get these slots quite difficult to to get the pilots to um to find the time to slot you in and the numbers are growing as i mentioned exponentially so it's a sport that's growing every every year and uh, there's going to be such a demand on this ocean seven and i think there'll be other swims around the world well i know there are a lot of other swims opening up and it's not until you get into the sport and talk to like-minded people through social media and on the phone and in other ways uh, that you realise there's lots of opportunities for swimming around the world. So how many kilometres do you log then each week? Well, it depends. Um, in the real, the lead up to a big swim, you could you should get up to around 35 or 40 kilometres a week. Yep. And that includes uh, long swims on the weekend, sometimes up to eight-hour swims with kayakers and you have to sort of mobilise your friends and family and you get people to go with you, and sometimes that's in the middle of the night, as I said, in winter, and sometimes it's on bright sunny days. Sometimes you want it to be choppy and, and um, bad weather, so you get a taste of that. And other times you want it to be cold, so you, you get a, a conditioning for cold swim. For the North Channel, it's uh, it's hard to find that cold water, and we travel. We go to Melbourne for cold water camps in the middle of winter, and we find enough cold water there. But we're looking for water down to around uh, 12 and 13 degrees. Hard to find. Yeah, it's around Sydney, that must be really hard to find. Are you tempted by ice swimming or any of those crazy things? Well, I've got a couple of friends. Timmy Garrett, for example, has done the Ice Mile. Yep. Uh, well, he's working towards the Ice Mile and working with other people to do that, and that is uh, an incredible achievement. I was with uh, a young guy called Ben Freeman 
uh, last weekend who told me that, um, you know, it's one of the toughest things he's done, although he's an amazing swimmer and very accomplished swimmer. Just that 20 minutes in the water, in water under five degrees, is uh, is really draining, really hard work. So I'm tempted. I know that I can see... I can see the attraction to it and I can feel the attraction if I'm in cold water. Um, I've never been in under five degrees, but I can imagine what it was like. And I think, yeah, I think uh, after I've done the seven, I'll be looking to do something like that. Yeah, that's right. You're going to have to keep chasing the the next target once you've got the seven, because I mean, that's, that's pretty high. (laughs) I've got a few things in mind and um, I've been watching other people around the world. For example, the young, um, woman from the States who just did a quadruple crossing of the English Channel four mm. times, just historic and heroic, and she's quite amazing. Sarah Thomas uh, just didn't even stop, sort of touched the rocks in France, turned around, swam back to England, wasn't anywhere near a beach, so you're allowed to get out for 10 minutes and sort of catch your breath, but she was nowhere near a beach, so it was just rocks back in England, swam back to France, rocks back in France, and eventually made her way back to the beach in England. So she's just heroic. But at the same time, um, there was a guy called Cameron Bellamy who swam for 57 hours in warm water. Water as warm as 32 degrees, he reports. I mean, that's just a completely different space to be in. And uh, I don't know how he did it, but he did it um, across the Bahamas. And an amazing bloke, an incredible swim. So I don't know where the boundary is. I don't know where... Uh, people say, well, that's just impossible because as soon as somebody says that's impossible, there's a lineup of like-minded people to say, well, we'll try and we'll keep on trying until we make it. Yeah, I mean, well, if I tried something like that, I think I'd hit a few boundaries pretty early on. But I think that's pretty amazing because not only do you need the endurance, but, I mean, they're not sleeping. It's incredible, you know. Just sleep deprivation alone is a factor that I don't know how how to deal with. How do you stay awake for 57 hours? You couldn't watch television for that long you know but moving your arms and cutting across the oceans and putting up with jellyfish stings and hot water and cold water uh, it is an amazing thing but you said you'd find boundaries pretty quickly but if you're trained um, you do exactly the same as any of us because it's not exclusive to supreme athletes these myself and other people who do this sport are just normal people who get a goal uh, fix on that goal and then train towards it You've got a great coach. All you have to do, I keep on saying, my mantra is just do what the coach tells you. Do it honestly and as hard as you can. And when you arrive on the starting line, you're ready. And you're ready. Uh, and that's always been the case. How so do... is Mark, Mark, you might be interested in the swim. I'm, I would love to do something like that. I think finding the training time at the moment is hard. But when the kids are 10 years older, that might be the opportunity for... Because I just don't think I've got the time to do the training at the moment. That's true. That's true. It does take a lot of your time. And it's not only the time in the water, it's recovery time too. So if you've done an eight-hour swim, you know, starting at six o'clock on a Saturday morning, you don't want to do much else Saturday afternoon or Saturday night, and then you're sore and tired on Sunday. So it just takes a lot of time and a lot big slab of your life. mentioned earlier and you mentioned it on your website the meditative state that you get into that must be so important what does it feel like it's an amazing thing and i i I like it a lot um and you can feel yourself getting into it i've heard a few people describe it i don't think any of us have really sort of nailed it yet but it's just a rhythm you get in when your arms are moving at a pace mine's about 64 strokes a minute uh, and you're swimming through the water and your brain just sort of just the rhythm of everything. Even in rough water, you can find a rhythm and it's almost like the chaos theory that there's a rhythm inside of all that chaos and it rocks you and you can feel it and you're one with the water. And then it's almost like that moment just before you fall asleep and you can feel your head getting nice and soft and everything around just sort of falling in place and you just go into meditation. It's a wonderful place to be and uh, I've had great experiences. One of the most memorable was um, when we feed every 45 minutes. So that's my feeding schedule. So someone on the boat blows a whistle or waves their hands or something and then 
They throw you uh, something on a rope. You're not allowed to touch the, the boat. They throw you liquid food on a rope. You take that down and get back into it again. So you don't really break out of that meditative state if you if you can do it right. Don't have to talk to anybody. You just get the bottle, drink. Fifteen seconds later, you're back into the rhythm again. But um, my coach, who I trust, Vlad, I trust absolutely, said, you know, stop, have a feed, have a feed. And then I started swimming, and five minutes later, he said, not even five minutes later, he said, stop and have a feed. And I had a bit of an argument with him because I said, I trust you, and now you're trying to stop me every five minutes for a feed. He said that was more than 45 minutes ago. So a wow. big slab of time was just taken away. Uh, and I didn't feel like I was hard-pushed. I, I wasn't getting stung. Maybe all those things were happening, but I was just cruising through the water. Like I liken it to being almost a cheat because – you know, an hour here and an hour there certainly you know, shortens the swim. That's amazing, especially in, in rough water because I could imagine you need to have your wits about you if you've got lion's mane jellyfish and whatnot all around you. But to get into that state in, under such in, intense pressure, that's something. Well, I look for it now. I really search for that, that state. And uh, I can do it on my own. I find it difficult when I've got other swimmers around me because I'm not exactly sure what speed I go when. I go, okay, so I yep. go on the required speed, but I look and, and I just want to be in that space, uh, and it's just really quite beautiful. It's at one with the ocean. So, yeah, I, sometimes I can find it, and other times I can't. When you can't, it's a bit frustrating. You just have to accept that that's not the day for it. I guess open water swimming, or at least this long-distance swimming, is something you want to keep doing for the rest of your life if you can tap into that that state. Uh, well, it is in that state. I suppose the next step is to find that state outside of the water, and then you know, that's, I'm sure that's meditation, some sort of deep meditation. Yeah. But I've, I've tried meditation once or twice. It's it's hard for me because I get a little bit distracted, like everybody else. Uh, but I, I'm sure it's just the rhythm of the water. It's just the constant slap of your own arms on the water. It's the bubbles blowing out. You can hear the bubbles. Remembering, Mark, that all the other senses uh, at one stage or another are taken away from you. If you're swimming at night, which a lot of our swims in case, in fact, all the channels take some part of the night swimming, then usually it's dark. There's, it's, for mine, it's been overcast. There's no stars. And you don't have the sense of sight for most of the time. You have a little bit of a light somewhere else, but you're just lifting your head to breathe and you see a light and then back in the water again. So it's all but taken that sense away. Of course, you can't smell. Uh, you can't taste it or you can taste the salt. So that's sort of taken away from your mouth all the time you can't hear other than just the bubble so you're really sort of shutting all of these other avenues off and you've only got your own mind your own thoughts and those few parts of the senses that are left yeah i hadn't considered that before that the lack of senses and combining that with focusing on the rhythmic breathing i, I can see how it's very similar to meditation yeah yeah um and so how do you do the logistics for all these swims when you're saying you bring your family over and, and all the rest of it, but how do you find pilots? How do you find the people to help you who know the oceans and when to go and when not to go, etc. when you're going to places you've never been before? So each of, um, each of these channels have an association. Some have two. In the English Channel, there's two associations. Each of those have boats and pilots, captains that, and observers. And so when you want to do one of these swims, you have to contact the association. You have to try to get a slot to swim. The English Channel now is booked out for two years. Mark, so you might want to check in now and you'll get <laughs> 2030 or something. Uh, but they're taking bookings, I think, three years out now. Uh, but they're all quite similar. And then you get your window and then you just prepare. You go to a good coach um, and you prepare training so that that's going to bring you up to the peak physical condition for that day and it might be a year down the track and so you've just got to stick to that training regime um, the feeding regime you have to get your nutrition which is an incredibly important part of swimming um, you have to get all the people around you that can feed information into you that's why our squad is so good because it's quite unique in that any any given day in our squad you've probably got 10 people that have swum the english channel and other channels and triple crowns and all those sort of achievements so uh, we, we're pretty um, we're very lucky in our squad. Mm. And I think that's got something like 58 people across the English Channel, which must be some sort of record. Wow. I think he's got seven triple crowners and all, all those sort of things. So that's a great resource for us. And then you've got to book flights, accommodation, and all the other things 
Uh, and then when you land in your starting point, you sort of got to give yourself over to the pilot and the association, uh, get some advice for them. And then it's a matter of saying each of them will give you a window, like a, a week. In fact, once very lucky to get 10 days in New Zealand, but usually they're about a week. And you just stand by and ring them every day or they'll ring you. And then one night, hopefully, they say we start at 3 o'clock in the morning and you prepare everybody and everything to meet the boat down at the harbour and away you go. Wow. And, and you mentioned the triple crown of swimming. So, so what's that? So it's a triple crown of three swims and that starts with the English Channel. It can be in any order. Any order. Um, Catalina Channel, as I mentioned before, between Catalina Island and Los Angeles and a circumnavigation of Manhattan Island. That's not one of the channels, but it's a, a required swim for the Triple Crown. It's long as well. It's a long way. It's more than 50 kilometres, and it's up the filthy East River. So you start at different places, but for mine, we started at the bottom of Manhattan, the bottom tip, straight into the East River, up through the Harlem River, um, spat out at the top into the Hudson River, and then the Hudson River all the way back down to the starting point. Have you got sick from any swims like that, swimming through sewage or anything dodgy? If, you, if you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick in the Manhattan in the Manhattan swim. Right. But no, I didn't. I took a lot of precautions. I got a lot of jabs for things. I was very careful. I, it's not always that filthy. I think it's particularly filthy after a, after a heavy rain. Um, but I was lucky. The weather was good, and, uh, and we went around without too much problems. That's cool. A lot of disgusting things floating in the water, and... You know, they call them the Harlem whitefish and they're condoms that are floating all around the Aww. place. I don't know. They must have a very active nightlife, I think, in New York <laughs> because they're, they're everywhere. Uh, and there's all sorts of, you know, uh, crap floating in the water, if you like. I think the Hudson's a lot cleaner because that runs quite quickly and it comes from, you know, upstate New York, so it's, uh, it's a lot cleaner. ever you know just go off coogee and just swim north as far as you can or do you always do do it with a pilot or in, in organized ways or how do you how do you do it well i i sometimes swim to bondi and back on my own so that's about that's about 10 k's i'm very careful because i don't want people thinking that you know that's just easy done and the way they go because you can get stuck stuck halfway up and there's rocks there it's pretty pretty uh, unforgiving but I'm with a, a squad and uh, we just swim on the, on the weekends all over the metropolitan beaches. Um, but we have proper organized swims on Saturdays and they usually include kayakers, um, a small boats sometimes in races, uh, and we make sure that safety is paramount. So we take every safety precaution. Now, um, Timmy and I do a lot of swims. Uh, Timmy's very experienced, I'm very experienced. And we mitigate as much risk as we can possibly do. Um, I don't believe that sharks are a problem. You know, people like to exaggerate those. We see them sometimes around the place. We see dolphins and turtles and seals and all sorts of things. It's a beautiful, beautiful coastline. Increasingly, we're seeing a lot more plastics in the water, and that's something we all should be alarmed about. But I can't see too much changing in our society to fix that. But, you know, the dangers are um, overestimating your, your capacity. Uh, your capability. I think um, not understanding the weather and how that can whip up very quickly, not understanding the wind directions uh, coming from different points and, and how that will affect you, how the waves radiate off the cliffs and back again. So once you understand all that, um, then you greatly reduce the risks. To help, we try to get a kayaker on every swim because that's very important to give you food, to be with you, to have some form of communication and to be visible too from, from all around the place because you can do everything you want. It's not going to stop a boat coming running over you. I know that for sure. Um, but you just got to, as I say, mitigate. Uh, Timmy and I now uh, agree to take a big orange bubble. We tow that. It's not easy, but we tow it. We put some food, sometimes some communication like a phone in the back, and we just tow a small inflatable bubble up and back with us. And the Lifeguards are very happy that we do that because we're much more visible to everybody. Mm. 
that's probably good resistance training or something as well. <laughs> Carry a few more, a few well, more kilos around. Yeah, exactly. But um, that's the reason we really had a refocus, Timmy and I and a mate called Victor, refocused on, on that is that we went out swimming on a, uh, it wasn't particularly bad, but it was, wasn't a real pleasant day in the middle of winter last year. And um, the shark boat that was responsible for laying the shark net ran over us. <laughs> we didn't see it coming. <laughs> yeah. We didn't hear it. He didn't see, apparently, three very brightly covered caps of people swimming in the water, close enough to the beach and the point, just ran right over the top of us. And it's just a miracle none of us were killed. And yeah. I still can't believe it today that we escaped serious injury. So we constantly worry about that. And, you know, we constantly know that our friends and family are, are worried about us. So, uh, and some of us got little kids, so you have a big responsibility to them. It doesn't stop your sport, but it makes you think of the safest and, uh, and most reliable way to do it. Have you ever been in a particularly dicey situation where you've wondered how you're going to get out of it? Uh, well, that was pretty dicey, that having one. a 20-ton boat run over you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's been a couple of other occasions um, when I've miscalculated and um, washed up on rocks and things like that. Um, those are things you don't repeat. It's a lesson you, you learn very quickly. Um, and I know not to do that again. And so uh, very lucky on a couple of occasions. But as I say, we're with experienced coaches, most of the time with kayakers. Uh, and on the odd occasion we go around and we do everything we possibly can to make ourselves safe. Yeah. Now, of, of course, uh, to swim the English Channel and whatnot, uh, there are rules. You're not allowed to wear wetsuits. Uh, you can't touch the side of the boat. Can you tell me about all these rules and how you train for those rules? Yeah, I don't know who sat down and came up with them, but they were pretty ruthless. <laughs> so, so it's just called the English Channel Rules, and they're uh, now applied right across the board. Um, and some of them don't really make that much sense and, and add an element of danger that's not required. In my view, not complaining about them, but you have to know about them. And that is that you've got to start from a dry land. You've got to be seen for the boat and the observer. So each boat carries an observer to make an official swim. And they have to see you standing clear of the water. And then they blow the horn on the boat. And you're clear to go and you start to swim. And when you get to the other side, you have to scramble up sometimes on rocks, sometimes on a, on a cliff face. I've done that before. Uh, and if you're lucky, on a beach, uh, to stand clear of the water for the swim to be finished. And it's not until you're actually clear of water that the siren goes off and it's finished. Uh, that's a tough rule. And I think that could too with a bit of revisiting because if you swam 50 kilometres uh, and you're right there touching the rock and uh, I don't think there's any need. It's not a rock climbing sport. There's a swimming sport. That's right. Sport. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but they're the rules, and so uh, we abide by them. Sometimes we take a bit of bark off just to remember those swims. <laughs> um, while you're in the swim, you can you can only wear uh, racing bathers like speedos or or the like. Um, you can only have a cap and goggles, so you can't have any other clothes to assist your uh, buoyancy or anything else. So you can't wear a rashi, for example. You can't wear wetsuits, of course, um, and that's all you can have. That's a tough one. The other one is you can't touch the boat. You can't be, um, you can't be, uh, have another swimmer with you that's going to go ahead and so you can draft behind them. Yep. There's a whole lot of things you have to consider um, to make sure some even put a breathalyzer, breathalyzer on you before you start. Really? And, uh, I'd have to think getting on the booze and then swing a channel. Yeah, I can't imagine yeah, drinking is particularly <laughs> <laughs> performance enhancing. <laughs> that's right. Um, there must be some reckless people in that swim. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's pretty it's pretty tight, and the and the observer watches you every minute of the of the swim, and so it's like a twenty hour swim. That's a long time. They have two two observers sometimes, and two captains and two mates on the ship on the boat, and um, away you go. But you cannot um, do any of those things, including hanging on the boat when you have a feed. The feed has to be thrown to you on a rope, and that can be any form. But the easiest way, of course, is different things inside fluid like uh, maltodextrin or some protein powder or something like that. And you can stop as long as you like to feed, but every second is pushing you back usually. So you just got to feed really quickly and then just get back into it again. I use um, a, a rule of 40, feed every 45 minutes and then try feed maximum for 45 seconds. Quite often it's shorter than that, but that's what, that's the maximum I allow myself. And I guess they're very carb 
dense materials to, to, to get it into you. There's sugars and carbs and proteins and uh, sometimes you have a little bit of dry stuff like a little corner of white bread and other people have different things just to break the monotony and make you feel a bit better. Um, quite often people vomit uh, and then you lose all that nutrition in your, in your stomach and so you've got to try to top that up. If your nutrition drops in a swim, it's very, very difficult to sort of build that level back up again. So it's something to be very wary of. Yeah, and if, and if it is warm, you do sweat. People don't think that you sweat when you swim, but you, you still lose water. Absolutely, and, uh, and dehydration is a very, very important thing and something everyone's watching out for. So when you stop, the whole crowd, you know, everybody on the boat's looking over and asking you questions. If it's cold or there's danger of getting really tired, they'll be asking you personal questions. What's your name? What's her name? What's his name? Things like that so that they can judge that you're still lucid and you're still okay. Um, that's pretty valuable too. But you're right, dehydration is a killer out there. So you've got to make sure that you take that powder with the right amount of fluids, water. And going to the toilet, I imagine, is as uh, rudimentary as I imagine it to be? Oh, well, in cold water, it's quite pleasurable, actually. It's your only chance to get a little bit of warmth. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it might uh, you, just, you just pee as you're going along, and that's a, it's a learned art. <laughs> and uh, you just don't even break stride. You just keep on going, and um, it takes a little bit of concentration, but it's an important thing. And the observers uh, often, in fact, always ask, you know, have you peed? Because if you haven't, uh, then you're in trouble. There's something wrong with right. your system. So you, you must report that and it's going to be happening or else you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You raise a lot of uh, money as part of your as part of your endeavours and, and this dating back to your, kind of your trade union expertise. Can you tell us about seafarers and, and what you do? Yeah, I'm a merchant seafarer by trade. Uh, and then I, I moved into the trade union that represents those workers, and now I'm working in the international sphere, working with um, International Transport Workers Federation to protect workers' rights around the world, and we focus heavily on the maritime sector. Now, international seafarers, there's a little over a million of them, uh, generally are treated pretty, pretty poorly. They're from developing nations, the way that uh, the industry has um, I was going to say evolved, it's probably not the right word, <laughs> the opposite of that, uh, has gone backwards, is that uh, ships have very small crew, uh, are open to exploitation, because their registration, uh, and seafarers have a very, very tough time of it. We see a lot of injured seafarers, uh, a lot of mental health problems with seafarers, huge amount of suicides, uh, misreporting of those, um, no investigations of those. So it's like the Wild West. And uh, seafarers deserve more than that. They're carrying the entire world's economy every day of the week uh, around on ships, and it's off their backs. A lot of people make a lot of money, and yet they're paid badly, intimidated, uh, exploited. And so, I raise money for um, seafarers' mental health, and there's a great organisation that started in Australia, and now is international, called Hunterlink, and they provide uh, services for seafarers in in a multitude of languages mainly the main languages of the seafarers uh, that we know of, Filipinos, Indians, Ukrainians, um, uh, Sri Lankans and others, uh, and they can get on the phone free and talk to these uh, counsellors straight up. And it's been incredibly successful and we think have saved a hell of a lot of lives and made people feel a, a little bit better uh, while they're working away at sea. Bearing in mind, these guys are at sea for the best part of a year at a time, uh, away from their families um, in a harsh environment cruel conditions uh, and the mental health problems are, are amplified in that area. So I'm in their territory. I see ships in the background in all of my swims. Uh, quite often big container ships come very close to us, tankers and, and other sorts of ships. Uh, and there's a real connection there, a real connectivity. And so um, I put the word out, usually amongst the Australian maritime workers who have been incredibly generous. The employer's not that generous. Uh, but they put money in and uh, I've raised, I can't remember, I think it's around $50,000 for this particular this particular um, case. So it's Hunterlink and they do fine things. They're based in Newcastle. But as I said, seafarers all around the world can access them just um, by by finding the number on the internet and, and speaking to someone in their own language. A great asset. And the other thing that I was quite proud of was a, a Burmese, I was helping, doing some work in Burma, and uh, a Burmese widow came to me and asked if I could help get her some money because her husband had been at sea for 17 months. 
um, had not been able to send any of his pay home, even though it was pretty poor pay, but he wasn't able to send any home because of all the um, corruption in his country, even in the banks and through the military junta and all that sort of business. So he had the captain hold all of his wages for 17 months. And when he died, which was not investigated uh, on the ship in uh, in uh, Korea, or Japan, I can't remember which, um, they just took all that money back and they sent a small shoebox of his belongings back to his wife and two little kids. So that was just a tragedy and really, really, you know, shows me how important the work that we do is. So I took it upon myself to to raise money. I think it was only about uh, 10,000 US dollars, but that's a hell of a lot to her. And in Burma, that's probably the difference between um, poverty, living on the streets uh, and being able to at least have some sort of dignified existence for the for the short term, but the uh, the union that we set up there is going to help her in the future as well. So that was a real personalised thing, and uh, I, I she put the babies in my you know the little kids in my arms, and I thought God, I've got to do something about this. Uh, that's as best I could, and uh, helping the union develop over there is is another way that helps not only her um, and the kids, but everybody else that will come through from Burma as well. That's that's amazing. So what's the best way to sp- to sponsor you can we can we sponsor a swim or is it just go to hunter link and follow the links well hunter link i'm sure has got a, a a place to donate um but when i set up the last one not for new zealand i haven't got enough time but for the last one which will be my ocean seven i'll make a big deal of it and uh, encourage people to to donate and swim for seafarers and uh hopefully we can get some more money coming in we do fund uh hunter link as well so that funding comes in from the itf um, but of course, uh, that's a lot of people. We need a lot of assistance, and um, it's like a lot of other very good causes in Australia and around the world. There's never enough money. That's right. Yeah, there is never enough money. So what's next? So the Cook's Cook Strait is next. Are, are you going to do yes. Tim's um, uh, marathon swim from uh, down the coast near Sydney? I have to. Tim hasn't given me any alternative, so I've, just, <laughs> I've got to. And I've done that swim before too, twice. So. I like it. It's a beautiful swim. Um, I can't remember the dates of it, uh, but that's from Palm Beach to Manly, and then I know that he's going to push it out to Palm Beach to Bondi. So that'll probably be the longest organised swim in the country. In fact, I know it will be because at now the the biggest race, in fact, the biggest open water race in the world is in Western Australia. So it's from Fremantle or Cottesloe to Rottnest Island. It's yep. a great swim too, but there's nothing on the east coast. So Tim's developing this this great swim, uh, Palm Beach to Manly, beautiful, picturesque, clean water all the way down. Uh, and, you know, I'll certainly be participating in that. Are you going to run for a couple of hundred kilometres and cycle for a couple of hundred kilometres too, like Tim? Or I'll, I'll run if the tiger <laughs> chasing me, but Timmy does, and he does some incredible things. So channels aren't good enough for him. He's got to tack on an ultra long distance run and cycle before and afterwards and uh, he's doing some amazing stuff <laughs> um and so yeah so uh after cook straight there's hopefully that all happens and then and then there's japan next year well we speak in very positive terms mark cook straight's going to happen in, uh, in the next uh, two or three weeks yep and then uh, the pressure will be on the Japanese Association to find me another window, bearing in mind this will be my fifth visit to northern Japan, northern, yeah, Japan, and um, they're good guys. I know that they're going to support me getting up there, uh, and I'm going to give that the final crack, get across, and have the Ocean 7. Can you do that year-round, or is it just too cold in winter, or the wind's particularly bad at any particular time of year? All these channels have a, have a season, um, and so... In Japan, it's it's out of season now, but it starts very cold. Well, not very cold, probably 14 or 15, and it can get right up to 25 or 26. So the temperature is one thing. That big current that comes down from the north uh, to the – comes in from the northwest into the southeast. It's a terrible bloody thing that's got me once or twice. Um, that is uh, seasonal as well. And also you've got typhoon seasons, which throw all the currents and all the water out of whack completely. And I've suffered from those as well. So the last time I was up, I think we had three three typhoons surrounding the swim area. And that just happened. And, and the Japanese uh, fishermen up there that take you across, they're great guys, but they live in a very isolated area in a place called Tappy. Um, and you can see Hokkaido on a clear day across 
across the strait, but getting there is a completely different story. They've got um, specialised, very narrow gutted boats, and they're uh, squid fishermen and also tuna fishermen. My last captain caught a 260-kilo tuna um, wow. a couple of weeks before he we went up one time. It was incredible. And so that's a great swim. I, it is, but I haven't finished it yet, but but you see a lot of things. I've seen, I've swum with team, uh, a small school of tuna, uh, sea snakes, um, all sorts of other wonderful things. It's a, it's an incredible swim. Oh, that sounds amazing. Like the, I, I wish you good luck because I think that'll be that'll be just amazing. And then to be just one of really a handful of people that have done this, that's yeah. incredible. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, <laughs> particularly <laughs> yeah. after all the years that I've been banging away at it. Yeah. Uh, and I've been sort of training for all that time too, so I look forward to a, a bit of time off and, and then consider what else I'm going to do, but certainly I won't stop. Yeah, what would be on the list then? We talked about ice miles possibly. What what other ch- I mean, there, there's always somewhere else to swim, right? There's always somewhere else to well, swim. Well, there is. Would you it's want to? It's a f- big world, and there's a lot of coast. So we, and there's a lot of you know islands to swim to and around and and through. So I, I'm talking to people, and I'm trying to sort of map around the place. I uh, want to do something nobody else has done, and I think that's probably the logical step after this. You really want to um, distinguish yourself and try to find some other place, and then see if someone will chase you and try to do the same sort of thing. Yeah. So I haven't got anything firm in mind yet, but I've just got a couple of ideas rattling around my head. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. No, that sounds but, you know, The wonderful thing about swimming is you just put yourself in this environment. I just mentioned, you know, where else would you swim with a school of tuna going your way? And I've got some strange memories of that. Uh, where else would you swim in, you know, when you've got warm, crystal clear water? And we've got something called bioluminescence that um, if you're very lucky, you can experience. And so that's when the water is still and the... You know, the, the season's right, and you can put your hand in the water, and this motion of the of your hand um, excites the plankton or whatever it is in the water, and it just lights up in beautiful blues and, and greens, and it's like a Star Wars movie as this stuff drifts at night into your goggles and sort of explodes lightly onto your goggles. Those sort of things you just don't see anywhere else, and the ocean is just a unique environment that you have to be in for a long time and experience that. So it's one thing reaching these goals, but it's another thing just being completely immersed in a different different world. Yeah, I mean, that you, you talked earlier about shutting off your senses, but then to have that one turn back on and see bioluminescence, that's not something you see every day. No, it isn't. And uh, I've seen it once or twice, but I, I haven't been that lucky to see it for a long time on a swim because you could just get lost in that, just watching it, you know, sometimes hour after hour, just beautiful splashes of light in an otherwise black environment. Um, when I did Catalina, some very good friends of mine, Rachel and Mike, did it as a as a, uh, a tandem. So both of them wanted to swim um, and record a solo. So they did, husband and wife, uh, great people. They swam across Catalina. Um, and we were all together. I was due to swim the next day. On their swim, it was beautiful and calm and they had these wonderful experiences with dolphins and or seals and things and bioluminescence for hours and hours and hours 24 hours later i swam the same swim and you'd swear it was in a different ocean because it was rough <laughs> and squalls coming through and people getting kicked out of kayaks it was uh, quite extraordinary but we laugh about that quite often <laughs> you're not tempted to go back and do it again then try and see it all no well i none of those swims i want to do again some people do some people have done the english channel you know multiple times um, and I just like the idea of doing it once, and there's so much more to do that I get quite excited about other opportunities. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, there's so many places you could swim. You could swim around Norfolk Island. You could swim, I don't know, there's a million places you could go. It, it's amazing. This is one of the great things about the sport, I guess. Well, we get a buzz um, quite often just swimming around Wedding Cake Island in yep. the middle of Coogee Bay. And for people that I haven't done, I've, been, I've had the privilege of swimming with some people that aren't very strong swimmers, just around that. And it's a 2K swim from the beach out around the island and back in again. But always you experience something, you see something spectacular. Uh, and just to swim around the back of the island, which spooks some people out for any irrational feeling, reason, um, is just a beautiful thing. And they talk about it for weeks afterwards and they really uh, are excited about it. So I just encourage people to do that and go with other, other strong swimmers. You don't need safety support for a 2K swim as long as someone's capable. 
uh, and you stick with them and you talk them through it, it's a great experience. So you don't have to travel around the world. That swim costs nothing. Uh, and you, people can take home a great experience for the rest of their life. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that in two weeks, actually. The, the Coogee swims on, the, the, the ocean swim. I'm going to go out and do that. Are you really? That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I really love the Coogee swim. I missed it. I didn't do it last year for various reasons, so I'm really keen to do it. I think it's great. And you do it at different times. Sometimes you can see the island. Sometimes you can barely see it. Uh, sometimes it's big and bouncy out the back. Other times it's you know it's like swimming in a lake. It's it's really nice swim. Well, I live right near it, and every single day that island looks different. And every single day there's a different feature to it. And uh, even us who have swum for a couple of years now, you can swim in front of it and see turtles and there's sheltered different ways the waves come around and wrap around the inside. It is quite spectacular. But the problem with that race is that it is a race. And so you get out and you race around, you go around the boys and race back and have a great time. And the beach is alive with anticipation and excitement. But the other side is doing it nice and slowly and stopping and looking at the fish and looking at something else. And there's reef and rocks all around it. Some of those rocks between the island and the southern point of Coogee look like a bricklayer's layer. They're just these great big symmetrical slabs underneath that for whatever reason don't have, I suppose it's Sydney sandstone, they don't have uh, anything growing on them. And they're just beautiful, big, round pebbles the size of you know, large footballs. Uh, it, it is a beautiful place. And that's why I live in Coogee, in fact. Yeah. Well, they don't let you get too close to the island in the swim, in the, in the race. So... Uh, that that's one advantage of doing it by yourself or with some friends. I guess you can get a bit closer if you know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, yeah, because you can you can get in a bit of grief pretty quickly if you don't know the island. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll still steer clear of it, though, I, I think. But, yeah, I'm really looking forward Very to wise. it. Very I think it's going to be great. Oh, well, I might see you down there. sharks for a minute because a lot of everyone's fascinated by sharks and when you swim people say the first thing they say isn't you know what about the cold what about the distance what about jellyfish they say aren't you afraid of sharks and it really quite you know gets under my skin a bit because sharks are the most misunderstood badly treated animals in the ocean Um, and we know they're under threat and governments react you know hysterically to to get votes and drum lines, kill the sharks and all these sort of things. But, you know, the most dangerous thing I've ever had is the shark boat. It's a, it's a Mr. Magoo captain on the shark boat. It's, a, it's not the sharks. And we see them often, but I had a one, the most wonderful experience when I was swimming uh, Molokai. And so we leave Molokai Island. We've flown there. Um, the boat sails across. That took them five hours to get from Honolulu back to Molokai. And we start swimming, and it's about five o'clock in the afternoon. It's a bit rough, a bit choppy, there's a bit of a squall coming through, but that's nothing, no big deal. Start swimming at five, it gets dark around 6.30 or 7, uh, and having a great swim. You know, it's a bit tough, and I find out later that I've been swimming in one spot for a few hours, but I didn't know that, so it didn't worry me. Um, and then I'm thinking it's a bit cool, so I'll be glad when the sun comes up in the morning, I'll have it on my back, I've worked out the direction, I'll have it on my back, and the water will become clear, and it'll be really nice, but... Um, when the sun did come up around 6.30 in the morning, so I'd been going for more than 12 hours, feeling good. I've got a kayak. I've got three kayakers taking shifts in kayaking next to me. And I've got the boat uh, some way off, maybe 500 metres off. They search for currents, put the boat inside the currents and see what they feel like, and they steer you accordingly. Um, the sun came up on my back. The water just started to get clear, still a little bit murky because it was only dawn. And there's this little pest of a shark came at the surface level. I could see it coming from my right-hand side, came towards me and just sort of hung around me. But I remember it was like snarling its teeth. It was just a pest, you know, it wasn't threatening me. And uh, I just kept my eye on that. And I looked around at one side and it was completely hiding itself uh, behind the kayak. But it wasn't any concern. But then I looked directly beneath me, beneath me, and... Uh, there was a big, big shark. And I didn't know it at the time, but the Hawaiians told me it was a oceanic white tip uh, and they're pretty uh, notorious in that area. 
But they said, well, I said, there's a shark down here and the kayaker could see it. He said, that's the same size as my kayak. That's a 14-foot shark. And I said, oh. I said, well, you know, he might have been there all night. Said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to get out of the water? I, said, I don't think so. It risks a lot of money. If you get out of the water, the swim is finished. You have to go back. There's no, there's no coming back from that. So, no, I'll keep on swimming for a while. Then we had some little chats, you know, be careful of this, be careful of that. In reality, if the shark wanted to do you harm, it would do it in the flash of a, you know, in the blink of an eye and that'll be all over. But this shark was just underneath me, maybe 10 feet underneath me, and just cruising along gently side by side. And I say she, I don't know, it was a boy or a girl, but I just like to think it was a she. She was just so gentle and deliberate and shadowing me the whole way across. And then I suppose... Um, I suppose after about an hour of this, the shark decided to want to come up a little bit closer to me and get a closer look, not threatening, and I could just feel it coming up. But we carry something called a shark shield, and it's a length of electrical cable that's about a metre long, and we tow it off the back of the kayak. It's chargeable, and so the shark shield has a, has a radius that will deflect sharks, should not scare them away, but deflect them. I watch that shark come up much less than 10 feet under me. That's a 14-foot shark, so it was like getting close to a bus. And then it just gave a flinch when it got inside the field of the shark shield. It gave a flinch and it just went off and then just come back out just outside the field of the shark, of the shark shield. It was an amazing experience. There was mahi-mahi that was swimming a little bit off to the side so they could see the shark and they didn't want to be anywhere near that, but I think they were fascinated. I could see big manta rays further deep. It was crystal, crystal clear water. But this shark just wanted to accompany me, just wanted, I suppose it was inquisitive. Um, I stopped for a feed and they put extra shark shields, another one on the bow of the kayak, one on the stern. They hung one over the side of the boat trying to give me a bigger field. I don't think the shark was too worried about that. But when I fed, very quickly, keeping trying to keep eye contact with this shark, it just came up to the water next to me, next to the boat, and just basked on top of the water so everybody could see it and just stopped there while I fed and then when I started to swim off again she just came back underneath me and resumed her position and then we swam off again from time to time over the next five hours that shark was directly under me it was the most almost people describe dolphins and and whales and things like that as a um, almost a spiritual experience and that's exactly what it was but this was a different level. You know, this wasn't a chirpy, happy, squeaking dolphin. This was one, according to Jacques Cousteau, one of the most dangerous sharks in the ocean. And they're endangered as well. Um, but it was the most beautiful thing. And they love deep water. So when we got closer to uh, Oahu, there's a big shelf that goes around the island. And that water goes from something like, I think it was 2,000 metres up to about 90 metres. When we got to that shelf the shark just swam off and she was gone. But that was an incredible five-hour swim with her and I'll never forget that. And it just makes me even more um, convinced that sharks just don't wait for human beings to get in the water and they want to eat them. They're there, they're inquisitive, they're highly intelligent. They know the difference between a human being and a fish um, and they just want, they're just curious. That, that's so incredible too because as, as fast as you may be, you're not as fast as a shark. So that shark was very deliberately just just hanging back and, and, and that's right. following you. I mean, that's just, that's just, that's beautiful story, isn't it? It is. And just to think that it just basked, it sort of yeah. knew that I was free. He had just basked there until I was ready to go again. Okay, let's go again. And away we went. I wonder what it was doing. Oh, it's really interesting. I oh, well, what I'm, it was I'm doing. convinced. I thought about it for a very long time. Certainly five hours I thought about it. I didn't take my eyes off it. Yeah. But I think it was just, I think it was just doing something, just having, you know, a, a little day out. I just think that it was curious, uh, it, super intelligent. It was just trying to work me out, but never aggressive, not for a second. And I didn't feel that aggression either. You know, you get a feel from things around you, uh, and I never felt threatened, never felt intimidated by that thing. That's so as far as outswimming a shark, that's what Timmy and I talk about. I just have to outswim Timmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that the shark shield had an effect, but but again, I imagine if a fourteen foot shark actually wanted you, I don't think a shark shield's doing much. Oh, I absolutely agree, and uh, I've since learned 
There's another shark called the cookie cutter shark, which I'd never heard of before until after that swim. And they're now become notorious in that swim because they're only less than a meter long. So they're a small shark, but they, they come up from the deep and they just head straight up at their prey, usually a whale or a seal. And their mouth opens completely flat and they hit their prey. Oh. And at the same time they hit, they twist and they take a complete symmetrical chunk out of their prey. Uh, like the cookie cutter suggests, uh, and then swims away with it. Uh, and there's been three swimmers that have had um, uh, an experience with those cookie cutter sharks. I'm glad I didn't, hit, I didn't know about them. But yes. one of the conditions in Hawaii is that you have to have a shark shield somewhere uh, near you, usually on the kayak. So it doesn't appear to have been very effective in that in that instance. Yeah, I guess I guess you take it and any any slight increase in the chance that you'll that you won't get attacked is good but um yeah it, it, i don't think there's any if a shark wants you they're going to get you i mean it's their ocean yeah i was i was a little disappointed because um i asked my wife kylie to uh, throw me, we had a little gopro on board and when i stopped and fed i fed just, just throw me the gopro she did and then i swam with one arm for two or three minutes with a gopro pointing to the shark and I thought I'd captured this on film, and then later on I found out I hadn't managed to turn the GoPro on properly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which so. is pretty disappointing, but, but everyone saw it. Uh, I just, I'll just i never forget it, and it's burned into my memory as one of the most beautiful experiences of, of uh, open water swimming that I've had. So you didn't hallucinate it after 12 hours of swimming? Uh, well, after 20 hours, I, that whole oh. swim took a, a lot more, so it took 20 wow. hours all up. And at the end, I was hallucinating, but you know, I, that started at five or six you know five o'clock at night i'd already spent the whole day traveling and getting over there so it's like you know 20 hours plus the 12 hours beforehand <coughs> so i've learned a lesson but i was hallucinating in the end but the shark certainly wasn't a hallucination wow how long did you sleep after that you sleep for a week i i couldn't get to sleep after that you know <laughs> you've got adrenaline the excitement you got a lot of sugars and maltodextrins in your body yeah so. you're probably wired you are so when you eventually do sleep you sleep pretty deeply wow that's a great story yeah i I just love it i love telling it not to say that sharks are out and be careful of them just to say that you just think about sharks in a different way think about just how intelligent sharks are and how long they've been around and you know they're just not some stupid man-eating beast that's waiting for you to dip your toe in the ocean and it really it exhausts me and I just resent people continue going on about it because they should get out and experience these things themselves. Well, it's interesting that, that was it last year, the Rottnest Swim, they, they did pull everyone out of the water halfway through the race because there was a shark sighted. Yeah, it was, excited. It was sighted by one of our own swimmers in our squad who we continually <laughs> go crook at because a lot of people didn't finish. But there are other people that see small sharks and don't tell the organisers for that reason because it's hysterical. There's a thousand people in the water in that race. What are your chances? First, of a shark wanting to attack anybody, and then you copying it. I just don't think that's happening. I do acknowledge, you know, there are shark attacks, and people do have bad experience. They get bitten, but you know, it's the chances of getting hit by a car are much worse. Yeah. You have a look at the Easter road toll and the Christmas road toll. People are happy enough to get in the car that you know five minutes later, but they won't get in the water for a week after a shark sighting. It's irrational. Yeah, I mean, it's a, Jaws has a lot to answer for, I think. Yes, it sure does. I think each swim is like a chapter. And so even the, the build-up to it, the camaraderie around being in that squad, you know, each of these swims is not on me. It's a squad and it's a coach and it's a family and it's all of those things go into it put you on the starting line in a very positive way you can't go doing these you're negative you're scared about something you're worried if you don't you've covered all the bases so you've got your nutrition right you've got your family around you've got everyone settled everyone understands the risks and what you're going to do and how you mitigate those risks um, and so it's just a real team, uh, team effort, a team sport, even though at the time it comes down to a few hours on your own, uh, you're never really on your own. And you have to acknowledge how valuable having a squad like ours is. I know I have some mates, particularly in Germany, that are great swimmers, but they train on their own and I don't, don't know how they do it. 
and some of them train in a 25 meter pool. There's not wow. much proper coastline in Germany, but they do it and they swim really, really well and they're strong, accomplished swimmers. So I just think I've got it pretty easy here in Sydney. Yeah, it's a, it's. A, I often think ocean swimming is kind of a, a perfect extroverted introvert sport or is it an introverted extrovert sport or something i mean in the end you're on your own swimming but often you're swimming with a pack of people or you know you've got a team with you as well so uh, it's and, obviously it's more the most egalitarian it's the most egalitarian experience you can have because you, there's no other bling you wear speedos and goggles and a cap maybe there's no nothing can show off you know like uh, triathlons have got the best bike triathletes have got the best bikes their shoes and all this sort of stuff and other sports have got bling around them but this doesn't care if you're old or young fat or skinny it just it doesn't matter if you're a man or woman everyone's just judged on how you swim uh, and how you know you embrace the squads and the swims on the weekends it's a beautiful thing and uh, it's something i'll be doing for as long as i possibly can That's all we've got time for in this edition of the pod. Thank you so much to Dean Summers for taking such a long time to chat to us about his ocean swimming conquests and his attack on the Ocean 7. Hopefully by the time you've heard this, the weather gods will have smiled upon him and he will be out swimming at the Cook Strait in New Zealand. If you'd like to follow Dean's progress, get over to our website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And from there, you'll find links to Dean's homepage, Dean's Facebook and Insta, and also you'll be able to sponsor Seafarers if you choose to do so. Thanks again. My name's Mark West. I'll catch you next time on The Pod.